Welcome to Earthly, a Clemson University podcast discussing issues of agriculture, horticulture, nature, and design impacting the world, nation, state of South Carolina, and even your home. Here's your host, Jonathan Veet. South Carolina lawmakers recently named the Venus flytrap the state's official carnivorous plant. The law places the plant in a category that includes the state bird, the Carolina wren, state flower, the yellow jasmine, state fruit, the peach, state tree, the palmetto, and even the state snack, the boiled peanut. Today on Earthly, I'm joined by Trent Miller. Miller is plant collection manager at the South Carolina Botanical Garden. He's going to talk about the flytrap and why it grows natively in only one small sliver of the Carolinas. He's also going to talk about other plants that are unique to the Palmetto State. Trent, thanks for joining me on Earthly. Thanks for having me. There's a movement afoot to name the Venus flytrap the South Carolina official state carnivorous plant, not so much because the state needs such a thing, but to bring attention to the fact that it grows natively in a small area of the Carolinas. Tell us about the plant, why it's special, and why it grows where it does. It is a member of the sundew family, so both of those types of plants have moving parts on their their leaves. And for Venus flytraps, they actually have evolved pads instead of sticky substances on their leaves. So they use those little hairs that would have hold, would have held sundew goo on them uh, to actually act as triggers that detect movement of prey items on the little trap, which is the leaf. They have to be triggered like once or twice to be able to um, actually close. Is there something about that area of the of the state that makes it want to grow there? Yeah, so it grows in really nutrient-poor, moist sites in Carolina Bays mostly. And those are on the coastal plain pretty much throughout the eastern seaboard of the U.S., um, I think up to New Jersey. They're very acidic, peaty. Um, they are not connected to actual the water system, so they, they fill in with, with rainwater. So they're very isolated. And so there's not a whole lot of competition because there's not very many nutrients in that soil. They've evolved to be able to, they're, they're small at ground level. They catch crawling insects, not flies actually, that just happen to crawl across their pads. And they use that as fertilizer to supplement the nitrogen that they can't get from the soil. Do you have any idea? How does it digest its prey? So those, um, trigger hairs that I talked about, they they kind of start this thing called thigmonasty, which is when a plant reacts to a, a touch. Um, you, you see it in mimosas, the sensitive plant that folds its leaves up. It's the same kind of mechanism. And basically that changes like the water pressure in certain cells on the, the trap. And so it snaps shut. That's what that fast movement is. And over time, it'll continue to push closed and secrete this these enzymes that digest it and it turns the insect into like to a goo and it just absorbs that through that leaf. How big are the insects I wonder that it can eat? Generally, they are pretty small, like spiders, smaller spiders, uh, some beetles. They're not not very large. So I read a report in the Charleston Post and Courier that the U.S. Wildlife Service was reviewing a petition to put the Venus flytrap on the endangered species list. To my knowledge, there hasn't been any decision on that. Is it endangered? It's threatened by a lot of things. So it, it definitely fits the criteria for being considered protected in some way. Does it have native prey that can eat it? If there was major disturbance in the site, that would cause, you know, a lot of destruction to the population. But I don't think that there's any herbivory that happens that actually 
impacts the population numbers. The fly trap, can it be bred in captivity? Yes. It can. Yes. And if it's bred in captivity, is it bred from plants that are poached? Like, how, how does that work? Because I understand you can buy them, but I also understand that they're endangered or they're not on the endangered list, but they're sort of threatened. So do you have any idea how that system works of being able to breed and buy fly traps? And is it illegal? So ideally, the plants, they all have to come from the wild at some point. So ideally, the plants that we would use for propagation would be collected with a permit from uh, whatever authority is managing the habitat where they are, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or some, some other um, agency. And from those plants, we would use them to propagate either by seed, tissue culture, division. Um, there's many different ways to do that. And there's a lot of breeding programs that actually uh, make them more appealing to consumers because they are very small in the wild. They're breeding them for larger traps and more colorful leaves and stuff like that. So you can get those and know that they are for for real, propagated, and not poached. And so one of the things we're doing in today's podcast is we're not saying the exact location of where these things are located because we don't want people to go there and disturb them. How do you feed it? Generally, they don't eat that much. You could probably put it outside and it would feed itself uh, if, if you have insects around. I wouldn't take the risk of putting like something that's too big in there. A, a prey item that's way too big for the trap will likely cause it to rot. And so that's not advised. And some people put hamburger in there. That will definitely kill your plant. So don't put ground beef in your Venus flytrap. And some people have, I've also heard have put uh, fish food in there. And I haven't tried it. I wouldn't recommend it, but who knows. Moving on from the Venus flytrap, it's my understanding that there are some other plants that grow exclusively in South Carolina. Yeah, so there are... A lot of plants that are very unique to the Southeast, uh, the Southeast has a whole lot of crazy plant diversity. And as you mentioned, they don't really follow political boundaries as well as, you know, we might like them to. So a lot of our rare plants are on our borders, like specifically in the mountains or maybe along the Savannah River. So we share them with bordering states. One example would be the Oconee Bell that's in North Carolina and Georgia and South Carolina. I believe that is it. It's been introduced elsewhere, though. And that's just restricted to the Blue Ridge Escarpment, where the mountains go from the Piedmont straight up. They live in deep gorges on that area. So it's it's a very narrow band of habitat that just happens to be where three states come together. And I will have a picture of an Oconee Bell on the website for the podcast, but could you tell us a little bit about what it looks like? They're evergreen. They have small round leaves that are really glossy, really beautiful. If anyone is familiar with Galax, it's a common plant in the mountains around here. It's called Shortia galacifolia or galacifolia because it looks like Galax. And it's actually related to it, but it's much rarer. And so it's it forms these tiny little rosettes, these little uh, flat plantlets that don't really get much of a stem. And in early spring, maybe late winter, they'll have single white flowers that are kind of shaped like a, a lampshade that kind of nod down. Sometimes they can be blushed pink and they're really pretty, um, but you have to be looking to see them. Are they also rare and maybe endangered? Yes, I believe that they are 
they are endangered. That's mostly just because of the fact that we've developed a lot of land around the Blue Ridge Escarpment, and they are very selective in their habitat. They they won't grow just anywhere. They need to be in a pretty moist environment that, that doesn't collect too much leaf litter, and they like acidic soil that's on a slope. It's 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 pretty niche. Um, tell us about some other plants that we may not know about that are uh, exclusive to our area or to the southeast. So one that is endemic to South Carolina is a type of blueberry called Rainer's blueberry. It only grows in one county in the Midlands. It's not much to look at, but it's it's very cool. It it's an evergreen, crawling, viney type of blueberry that um well, likes to grow in in moist pocosins. It's where water kind of seeps out the side of a really sandy hill in the the sand hills area. And then we also have a pretty common plant in this area, but it's very restricted to the Southern Appalachians, which is Hydrangea radiata. It is similar to the more well-known Hydrangea arborescens. You can get that in a lot of different cultivars at garden centers, but this one is, it's got a lace cap flower, and then the bottom of the leaf is a stark white because of all the hair on the bottom. It's really beautiful. So that blueberry grows in one county in Mm -hmm. South Carolina. There's Carolina hemlock, which is currently threatened and it's under review to be endangered. Mm-hmm. Hemlock woolly adelgate is a problem for that plant. It's a an introduced invasive aphid-like thing that is killing a lot of our eastern hemlocks and our Carolina hemlocks. Eastern hemlock grows from, I believe, Alabama all the way up to Canada. And then Carolina hemlock only grows in Georgia, South Carolina, Virginia, and Tennessee on rocky ridges or cliffs in the mountains. So it's it's very restricted to certain habitats and it's got pressure from um, an invasive pest. Do we know where that pest came from? Asia. It was an accidental introduction, okay. uh, probably on other hemlocks that okay. are from Asia. A lot of our rare plants are rare because of development and fire suppression. Fire used to be a very common phenomenon in South Carolina. We used to have tall grass prairie. We used to have a ton of longleaf pine savanna. And even our mountains used to burn on, you know, a much more infrequent basis than a prairie, which, you know, would burn, you know, every year, couple years. And that really has been a big driver behind a lot of the reduction in our native plant populations. That's why a lot of places that are in suburban areas have a lot of invasive plant issues because we're not supposed to have oak hickory forests everywhere. It should be grassland a lot of the places. But since we've stopped burning, we've opened up space for these aggressive non-native plants to come in and reduce our native plants that are really good for our local wildlife. So I would say that's one of the most important things to think about when we look at our rare native plants, how we have caused part of that. But some of it, some of them always were rare. Some of them are just restricted to very specific sites and never, never were that common. Um, but we've, we've got a role to play with all of them. How long ago was South Carolina prairie? That would have been in the 18th century. South Carolina was really more of a coastal colony at that time. So European settlers had not suppressed fire. So the natural systems were a lot more intact at that time. Now we have little pockets where people do still burn in like the low country and in um, even on home sites, like some people will burn their front lawns. That's 
probably a practice that's just been passed down since, you know, people have been here so long. But a lot of our native plants that are really rare and endangered have been able to survive because we've chosen to keep burning for other purposes, such as quail plantations or stuff like that. What can the homeowner do or what can the average person do to encourage the growth of, uh, of native plants? Well, buy them. Um, try not to buy exotic plants from big box stores if you can. If, if there's a good native alternative, go for that one. Also, it's pretty good to go with local ecotypes. So if you have a native plant society or a local botanical garden or something, then you can usually reach out and see if they have locally collected or grown seeds that they could they could share with you. Um, I know that personally in, in my yard, I, I try to notice what naturally grows there and collect seeds from plants that are already on my property to use around in the landscape. And what if the plants that are already on your property or the native plants aren't pretty? Because people like to look at things that are pretty. Well, you can, you don't have to have only the plants that are native specifically to that site. You can look and see what's native to this general area and what does and does well in this kind of environment. And there are native cultivars that are not exactly the same as our wild types, but they, they are more attractive. Kind of like how the Venus flytraps are bred to be more showy. These plants are bred to be more showy for reliable in home gardens. So that would be a good choice for that. If a, if a person wants to replace a, a non-native plant with a native plant, how do they find out about the native equivalent? Is there a resource for them to do that? Clemson's HGIC website is really a great resource for a lot of things like that. There are a lot of native-focused nurseries and um, seed sources that you can just look, look for online. You're the plant collection manager at the South Carolina Botanical Garden. Tell us a little bit about your job and tell us about the South Carolina Botanical Garden and uh, what it has to offer people. So I basically try to keep up with all of our plants on our almost 300 acres of uh, garden. So I make sure things are identified, um, try to keep the signage up and keep track of the things that we're getting in and the things that, you know, we are deaccessioning because of old age or, you know, disease or we just need to remove. And so, like I mentioned, the garden is almost 300 acres. We've got an arboretum, we've got restored prairie, we've got all sorts of other constructed habitats on the Natural Heritage Trail where you can see a lot of these rare or endangered plants in the garden, such as the Oconee Bells. And then we have more typical garden space like uh, the Visitor Center grounds. Is that The Visitor Center is an old Southern living model home, and the grounds around that are more more formally kept. And then we have uh, you know woodland trails and all sorts of stuff. Are there any specific displays that people should know about? Any specific exhibits? A lot of people really like our Hosta Garden. That's kind of in the middle of the garden. It's, it's a pretty nice, cool place with a artificial waterfall and a pond. And we've got the Desert Garden, which is right near the Geology Museum, near the Visitor Center. And that's kind of a just a collection of desert southwest plants, mostly from Texas, but also from other places. We've got a lot of California poppies blooming right now, which is beautiful. Do they have events at the garden? 
Yes. We have rentals for um, weddings and stuff, but we also have public events, concerts, I believe, in the spring and the fall. We have plant sales in the spring and the fall. We just finished up our, our spring plant sale. And um, I believe that we have a lot of programming for adults and children for you know, just educational purposes. Like Master Gardener or stuff like that? Master Gardener, Master Naturalist, or uh, Native Plant Certificate, and summer camps for kids. Okay, great. Trent, thanks for joining us on Earthly Today. We will have links to your bio and a few other resources on the Earthly website. Thanks for having me. This has been a fun opportunity. Earthly is a production of Clemson University and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Listeners can find archived episodes of Earthly, transcripts, and learn more about our guests by visiting clemson.edu slash earthly.